Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientist deeper than their science to find out they have tricks to talk to Warren Buffett and do a great impersonation of their Aunt Linda, or that they love cicadas and enjoy naming them Lavette, Johannes, and Humphrey while walking around with them on their shirt. Maybe the last one's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, if you're enjoying the show, consider following the podcast on Twitter at Deeper Than Data. There's also a Facebook page, which you can find by going to facebook.com slash deeper than data. Now for today's episode, I think it's going to leave you feeling more wise and really understand the bananas polarization we have in the U.S. and across the world. You'll be sharper, faster, stronger, and we can rebuild you. Like I built this podcast, sometimes the software that was recording it cut out. You'll notice it this time, I promise. It's not a great promise, but it is a promise. Done my best to kind of stitch it all together. Still a good flow. You'll get some great things out of it. And I did too, especially while editing again. I kept thinking, oh, that's another good point. And I bet you will too. So on with the show with Mike Wagner. Thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks for asking. So to start out, just like everything else, could you give us your name and the pronouns you prefer? Sure. My name is Mike Wagner, and I am a he, him pronoun person. Super. Um, And could you give us a physical description of yourself? Sure. Um, I'm five, seven and a half in shoes. I wear glasses. Um, the hair is further up on my forehead than it was when I was younger. Um, was blonde. Now it's brown. Um, got a goatee. Uh, I'm wearing a blue and white checkered shirt. Super. We are about the same height, uh, same hair color. I almost have a goatee going on too. And I probably should be wearing glasses to be able to read all my questions. But <laughs> I, have a, I have a red sweatshirt on. That's our only difference at this point. Mm. And are there any identities you'd like to highlight about yourself? Um, well, I suppose I think of myself as a, a parent and a partner and a friend and a professor, probably my main identities. Um, musician. Um, yeah, that, that probably covers most of the ways I tend to think about myself most often. Yeah, you play guitar, right? I play guitar uh, and piano and the trumpet, although I haven't played the trumpet in a while. Yeah, how long have you been playing guitar? I started in college. My my college roommate, um, once we were out of the dorms, the guy I lived with um, for three years uh, in an apartment um, was a really good guitar player. And my dad had given my mom a guitar on their first anniversary the year before I was born, and she never played it. So I took it to college and learned um, to kind of play rhythm guitar with my roommate's um, lead guitar when I was in college. Nice. Uh, yeah, so you've been playing for a little 20 bit. 20-some years, yeah. Yeah, 23 or 4, yeah. I was going to say quite quite some time, but I didn't think, would that be insulting? You got no. some experience. No, I think the point is to get older, so I, I'm not, I, I like my age, it's fine. Yeah, I'm 44. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I just recently turned 30 last month, and luckily you can say, yeah, getting older is pretty fun. Like you, my, my hair is also receding a little bit, but. <laughs> not as bad as mine, but yeah. Yeah, I've often said my ideal age is 65. I'm, uh, you know, happy to um, putter around in slippers in a cardigan, and I'm, I, I will be, I will be great in my 60s. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, and before I forget, can I get your positions and roles on campus? Yeah, sure. So I'm a professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at UW Madison. Uh, I am also uh, the director of what will soon be the official uh, Center for Communication and Civic Renewal on campus. I'm affiliated with political science and the La Follette School of Public Affairs. I'm I'm, I'm not exactly sure what these titles are, but they're all in the neighborhood of senior fellow or faculty affiliate um, at the Mass Communication Research Center, the Elections Research Center, the Center for Communication and Democracy, 
Um, and then I'm on the faculty advisory board of the Tommy G. Thompson Center for Public Leadership. I think that covers everything. Just a few titles here and there. Yeah, it's a long email signature if I would put them all in. But I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, cool. And then building off of that, you know, doing a little research on you, it seems like you've got a lot of research going on, lots of research projects. But could you give us a summary in two minutes of the research that you do? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm really interested in how the way that different kinds of information flow through the different um, platforms uh, and other elements of the information ecology that we engage with um, influence uh, our preferences, uh, what we know, and what we do. Uh, and so most of that uh, I would do from a, a political communication perspective. So most of the research questions I ask are about uh, outcomes related to politics, and most of that uh, is in the United States. Um, some research projects are dealing with contentious politics in Wisconsin and how Wisconsin got to be such a contentious place and what communication has to do with that. Uh, I do a lot of work on fact checking and for whom and when do fact checks work and what are some unintended consequences of correcting misperceptions uh, of fact. I do some work on partisan polarization and who's divided and who isn't and why and what does that mean for uh, how we think, reason and feel and behave. Uh, I do a little bit of work on religion and politics. Um, a uh, little bit um, on how things like time affect what like ha what happens. So, like a, a recent paper I'm working on looks at how uh, routinized times of day that people use the internet to search are highly correlated with what uh, is on the public agenda. Um, and strategic elites are really good at figuring out um, when to announce things at, at peak search times, which give them a little more bang for their buck. Yeah. So I'd based I would imagine based on that you were very busy during 2020 yeah um i i always joke that i i know i know what it was like to be popular in high school from about august 1st to december 1st in election years um that's that's when i get a lot of attention from from others <laughs> that's awesome well speaking of high school um i definitely want to dive into you know some of the implications of your research later on uh but i want to go back first to understand mike as a as a youth as a kid uh so I get to ask my favorite question, and it takes us back. Uh, who was your first crush? Well, I I think probably uh, it was a, a girl named Wendy Verstraight. So my last name starts with W. Hers starts with V. I sat behind her in the fourth grade, um, and so I think that was that was. I think yeah, that's probably like the first time I like would you know go home from school and think, oh gee, if only Wendy liked me, wouldn't my life be perfect? You know, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, in elementary school. There was like this rule uh, that if you were in sync while sw swinging on the playground uh, with your crush, like you'd wind up uh, being married together. And I remember having moments like that, and I was like, "This is it! Like I'm, I'm done." <laughs> you're locked in. It's over. Yeah. Did you have that at all? I don't remember that rule. I remember um, a common uh, playground thing, um, at least in Minnesota where I grew up was a uh, when there were dandelions out um, and anybody thought that anybody else might have a crush on someone, they would pick up the dandelion and say, you know, you know, Ben and Mike had a baby and their head popped off and they would knock the uh, top of the dandelion off. And so there, there was a lot of that. And playgrounds are also great times to start people watching. I'm curious, like, was it elementary school when you started noticing kind of like, I don't know if you could even grasp the idea of like systems at that point. But just being like fascinated in how other peoples operate. I've always been really interested in what motivates people to do the things they do, and so I've, I've always paid a lot of attention to to that. And I, I think I was pretty good as a kid at figuring out what motivated people and what what was driving particular behaviors they were engaged in. And um, and so that that was a that was a relatively consistent part of my childhood was trying to figure out what makes other people tick. And then how do I want to integrate myself into that with, with them? Yeah. Did you read any like certain books that helped you get along? I'm trying to imagine like what does a political scientist read as a kid? <laughs> I read a ton of books about sports, a lot of um, sports statistics books. Uh, I read a lot of like kid pitched history. Um, 
So I, I remember this book, Meet Abraham Lincoln, that um, I read a ton of times when I was a kid. I read a lot of your typical kind of Beverly Clary, you know, Judy Bloom type books as a, as a really young kid. Um, there was a guy, uh, I think his name was Alfred Sloat, uh, who wrote a lot of books. Like basically every book was basically the same. It was some kid who was good at sports and had uh, an absent father who was also really good at sports um, uh, in, in some way or another. And so I read a lot of those as a kid. What else? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the elementary school that, yeah, I, I, I guess the Hardy Boys. I was pretty into the Hardy Boys for a while. Mm-hmm. Did you go out and collect animals, sticks, or anything like that? No, I, I, I liked being outside to play sports, but otherwise I was inside. Um, so I, I didn't, I, I, we had a dog once, like when I got into the eighth grade, we got a dog and that was great, but, um, but I wasn't a, collecting sticks or playing in the dirt. If I was outside playing it, if I was either playing sports or I was, or um, playing with star Wars guys. Yeah. Were you fascinated by how people became embedded in their teams too? Like even in pickup games, I think there's a lot of pride almost built immediately. As soon as you say you're part of this group. Yeah, for sure. Um, My, my backyard neighbor who, um, was my best friend all through growing up and, you know, is one of the people I would still consider one of my best friends. Um, we would probably, uh, play together football where I would be the quarterback and he'd be the wide receiver for hours every day. And then when we would get into larger situations, you know, yeah, the, the teams formed in pretty, pretty consistent ways. Um, you know, basically, you know, each team needed somebody could throw the ball, somebody could catch the ball and then everybody else. Um, and so, they, they organized themselves that way. We lived about a block away from a park and would regularly uh, just kind of show up on Saturday morning and play football or basketball or something like that. Nice. Did you continue doing a lot of uh, sports-related activities in high school as well? Through my freshman year. So I played freshman year football, and I think I might have done track my freshman year. I played golf, I think, all through high school, if we consider that a sport. Um, but I, I, but I played, you know, baseball, basketball, hockey, football through eighth grade. And then I really was more arts oriented. So marching band plays, speech, uh, that, that sort of thing was my kind of high school uh, and, and college for that matter, uh, activities. Cool. I'm glad you also did marching band and, uh, I, I know nothing about sports. So me asking sports questions, I'm proud of myself for doing that. So thanks. Now we can shift to something else. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did you play trumpet? In, in marching band? I played trumpet my first three years, and then I was uh, one of the drum majors my senior year. We called them commanders, which is a weird thing. But um, yeah, but I pl- played trumpet th- um, through high school in jazz band and marching band and then our regular concert band. Right, and the drum majors being the uh, basically the student who leads the marching yeah, band. Yeah, you climb up on the big stand and conduct the band. Mm-hmm. Cool, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I was also into music in high school and a uh, lot really into music composition. Um, and oh, I cool. was, I composed one of the endings uh, to our marching band show. Oh, that's pretty cool. neat. That yeah. is neat. Yeah, that is cool. And here I am now. <laughs> what did you, what was the, what was the show? Uh, what was it? It was a Japanese music inspired set where we actually got, um, I believe some of the, like the Kodo drums that our drum section would, would play and it was pretty cool we had a fight scene that the whole uh marching band would do in the middle while there was the drum break so then when you were in uh undergrad did you naturally start selecting political science courses for yourself or was it kind of just all over the place and you just happened to have like one class that clicked yeah i mean i was a journalism major i i when i was a so unfortunately, it cuts out in between Mike's undergrad career to when he started in grad school. And he's done some pretty cool stuff. And luckily, you'll still get to hear some stories about it later on. But in between those two time spans, Mike worked as a news anchor, political reporter, and worked on a congressional campaign as well. So I have some really cool experiences to build on before he got into grad school. And when he was in grad school, he had a professor that he worked with named Ken you hear about now. So I went to um, grad school at IU in, in political science. Uh, and so um, uh, my first year, I was a research assistant with Ken. Uh, and then in the summer, uh, they let graduate students teach. Uh, and so um, I got to teach kind of an intro to American politics class to, I think, 35 kids uh, that summer. 
Um, and I really liked it. And it really brought together the things I really liked about broadcasting. And so, you know, having an opportunity to create a story and explain it to an audience, what was, what was even better about it, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't to a passive audience that was, you know, listening in their car or watching on TV, but it was folks who could ask you questions and talk back to you and you know, take exams and write research papers and show you what they were learning. And so I, I really, really liked teaching. Um, so in the summer, I got to teach, uh, I taught every summer I was in graduate school. And then um, there was a, a living learning community, they called it on campus and the, the Colin, there was like a dorm called Collins on campus and the students there, um, it was like a, I'm not exactly sure how it originated, but there was like a special, like you applied to live in that particular dorm and you sort of governed yourself in some kind of way. Uh, and then they also had resources to have people uh, pitch classes they wanted to teach that they couldn't teach in their own departments. And then they would say yes, and you could teach it and you could earn your graduate funding that way. And so I taught a class um, about media bias uh, and US politics in, in Collins, I think my second or maybe third year in grad school. And then yeah, in the fall of 2002, I guess it was my second year of grad school, I taught that class. And then um, it seemed obvious in the fall of 2002 that the president was going to um, uh, invade Iraq and start a war uh, in, in early 2003. And so I pitched a course to my department to say, I'd love to teach. We had this special like special topics number uh, of a class. Uh, and I, I said, I want to teach a class called Media Bias and the War on Terror. And so I want to teach students about what it means to think about bias in the media and different scholarly perspectives on bias, but I want to apply it to a contemporary topic that we're all living with right now. And so, you know, on the one hand, it was the perfect time because uh, everybody was really engaged in the issue. And for the purpose of the class, you couldn't have gone to war at a better time, right? Right in the middle of the semester, all the stuff we're teaching, right at the perfect time for people to be thinking about these issues and wrestling with them and learning about them. And I just really loved teaching that class. And the students loved it. The evals were off the charts. It was just a great experience. And, and that kind of solidified what I liked about teaching large classes versus small and um, and so I just, I kept that going. And I, I've always, um, I've always done a little more teaching than uh, you're supposed to uh, at research universities, but I just really like doing it. Yeah. And I imagine too, when you're teaching that topics course at such a pertinent contemporary time, you probably have some students coming up to you and saying like, oh, wow, this has really opened my eyes and allowed me to digest what's going on. It was great. Yeah. I mean, people were so engaged, you know, I mean, Every time I would teach intro to American politics, you know, I would on the first day of classes ask people, you know, raise your hand if you woke up and said, how do I hold my government accountable today? Right. And every every time it's crickets, right. Hardly anybody, a couple of kids maybe um, are waking up with that general attitude. But in March of 03, when we were just off, just, you know, not long after 9-11, um, and about to, you know, engage in, you know, uh, a, a war that was, you know, constantly on television, um, everybody was just deeply engaged and really interested in why are some questions being asked about this war and not others? Why are some voices being uh, valued and not others? Um, why uh, do some stations or newspapers cover things in this way and others cover it in that way? And what does that mean for what people learn about uh, the war? What does that mean for the attitudes people develop about how much they might want to give up their civil liberties or not. And how do we balance questions of liberty versus safety and security and all those sorts of things. And so it was a great time for folks to be wrestling with that. And it was a great time for me just to think about trying to present this stuff in a way that that helped their, or that would allow kids who had wildly different views to all feel like they had a place to think about the issues together and, and not be, you know, not be not be evaluated on whether they thought the war was a good idea or not, but be evaluated on whether they could apply the research to the questions we were thinking about. Yeah, and hopefully be a third party uh, in a way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something very valuable if you can take a step back and like I'm, I'm saying this like I do it all the time, and of course I get swept up in you know partisan identities too. Um, but something really valuable when you can take a step back, even within your own party, and be like, oh, this is how they're trying to influence me right now, and it's extremely difficult to step away from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you have tactics that you would help your students understand? I think, yeah, always asking, um, why do you think that was the message they settled on? What other messages might they have used? Why do you think they settled on this spokesperson 
uh, to to push that message? Um, why do you think reporters talk to this person and not that person? Um, why do you think people are changing their message if they are? You know, it's just, it's just trying to get folks to think about why things are happening rather than just what's happening um, is, is, is useful. But also to get them to, you know, to realize it's really hard to know why things are happening. And, and that, you know, uh, when one, one student has a great explanation for why it's going on, another student has a completely different one. Um, and so, and, and to know how do we apply evidence to figure out, can we figure out which one of these is, is, is more true or, or is accurate or is closer to the evidence? And, and if not, what do we do if we can't know what the motivation is, right? You can't know what's in someone's heart, you know? And so when they make a claim, it's, it's, you can think about evaluating a, a leader uh, based upon what they say, based upon what they do, um, but it's hard to know what it is they, they truly believe. We, we, that's not something that we can really ever get to know. Yeah. So I'm imagining you're, you're teaching a couple courses in grad school. It's going great. You seem really fulfilled from it. You also have to do your own research. Is this the time when you're like, oh, you know, I think a professor position would work well for me? When I was an undergrad, a lot of my professors told me I should go to grad school, and I just I could not have been less interested. I was like, no, I'm going to be a reporter. You all don't know what you're talking about. And once I stopped being a reporter and went to graduate school, I thought, oh yeah, this is a, this is exactly what I like. Um, <laughs> I really like um, asking questions about why things happen and th figuring out what kind of data would we need to test different kinds of hypotheses. I really like writing the stuff up. I still like the writing aspect of you know of, of journalism, um, and I like. Uh, engaging with students and teaching, I like, uh, like I loved the culture of newsrooms, and I, I like the same thing about research groups um, or, or small seminar classes. Um, I, yeah, I, I really like most aspects of of the job, and so I, yeah, I've just I've been pretty lucky, and that this is this is the right thing for me. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I remember. There's such a great irony in other people watching you go through the world and say like, you would be good at this. And it just like, I don't know if it's like a gut hesitance to say no. A little bit of immature reactance on my part. Yeah, just like, you don't know what's right for me. Yeah. I know what I'm gonna do, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, I remember even in uh, my high school graduation party, someone was talking about like wanting to go into nutrition. And I was telling them like, why, why would anyone ever want to go into nutrition at all? And here I am in my third year of a PhD <laughs> in it. Um, but I, I think it's just like, it shows you, you're passionate about this. You're just upset with the way that the system is kind of being run right now. And it might come back to you later on in life. Yeah, you know, um, you never know, right? And uh, like my grandmother was a nutrition professor. And, and, and to, to think, you know, that I would be a professor just never occurred to me. Um, I, I always loved school. I always really liked teachers. It's sort of, it's sort of sad that I wasn't self-aware enough to know that like these are all things I like. Maybe I would like to do this, but I just never, never thought about it. Um, I was really focused on being a reporter and 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 being on TV and um, covering politics. And then once I went to grad school, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so much more my speed. Um, and and you know, I'm I'm from Minnesota, and I'm also an introvert, and so. Um, being a journalist was a lot of emotional labor every day where most of what you're doing is calling someone you've never spoken to before and then demanding answers of them on something they probably didn't want to talk about. And so, um, you know, that's, that took a lot out of me personally. It was just, uh, I'm less cut out for that day to day than, than lots of other good journalists are. Yeah. At the same time though, I, I'm sure your experiences, even though it's not the path that you went down, have made you a much more well-rounded person. Oh yeah. I think so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Um, you know, that's all, I think one of the core tenets of this podcast is like, yes, everyone has gone through these roundabout avenues to get to a point which seems to resonate with them pretty well. Sometimes not always, but it's through that trial narrative that you get to find yourself. Well, for sure. And like the, the stuff I did as a reporter, whether it was interviewing mayors and senators and, or famous athletes or families of gunshot victims, like you see people in lots of different elements of their life and you're dealing with a lot of people on the one day that's the day they remember you know for years years and years and, and so that was really helpful to me in having you know office hours conversations with students as they're trying to figure out what do they want to major in or why aren't they getting the content in the class or 
Um, they hate their roommate and what do they do? You know? And so just like, I, I, I was, if I hadn't had the experience of seeing lots of people and at their best and at their worst and, and, and at their most angry and, uh, most scared, um, or most excited, I, I think, it, I think it would have been a lot harder and more shocking, I think, to, to see the range of conversations you have with students and colleagues, um, uh, on campus. When you were being a reporter, just to go back for a second, was there anyone that you were um, so excited or like fanning over in a way that it was hard to talk to them? When I when I moved to Omaha, my very my very first day on the job, um, Warren Buffett, who lives in Omaha, uh, was uh, giving a talk somewhere, um, and my news director didn't want me to cover the talk. He wanted me to um, corner Buffett after the talk and ask about uh, Hillary Clinton's candidacy for the Senate in New York, um, because she was gonna be running for Senate at that time. And, and Buffett was gonna, be, was, was uh, I think had been reported to be one of her early backers. And he actually ended up hosting a uh, fundraiser in Omaha uh, for uh, Hillary that, that she attended and you know, lots of the wealthy of Omaha went to. And so um, I was just really, you know, I was probably 20, three or four um, and was talking to one of the richest people in the world and trying to demand his time when, you know, billionaires don't have to do what they don't want to do. Right. And so it was, it was really um, challenging to try to chase him down um, and, and, and see if he would talk. Um, and I had a couple of different strategies to try to get him to talk and eventually got him to say at least one thing on, 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 uh, on air. But, um, but that, that, that was kind of nerve wracking. Um, and then there was a time, uh, so I went to the University of Nebraska um, uh, as an undergraduate. And when I was there, the four years I was in school, uh, the football team won three national titles. The coach was a guy named Tom Osborne, who um, is kind of the, was kind of the Jesus of Nebraska in, in a lot of ways, um, was just beloved by the people of, of the state. Um, it had been, he'd been the coach for a couple of decades, but had started to win a bunch of national championships right in succession. Uh, and then when I came back to Nebraska as a reporter, um, after being in Peoria for a while, he ran and, and won uh, a race for Congress in the kind of the third district of Nebraska, which is basically everything to the west of Lincoln and Omaha um, in, in, in the state. And, and, and um, so I had to go cover his uh, announcement speech and uh, my news director wanted to push because, you know, Osborne was a football coach for years who basically, you know, kind of didn't have to answer anything he didn't want to answer and was able to use his easy sense of humor to get out of tough questions with reporters for the most part throughout his time as a football coach. And he was very successful. So people didn't push him. Uh, and then he's running for office now. and That's different. And so having to push this guy who I'd also gotten to know when I was an undergraduate because I was a broadcasting major and would broadcast football games and do the student interview with the coach and stuff. And so gone from him, him being this person of who required extreme deference to now a person who I was going to say, you didn't, you're, you're not answering some questions about your, your position on some, you know, controversial issues. And now we want you to answer them was just, it was, was a challenge. Yeah, I'd imagine so. Um, yeah, I felt I've I'm still, you know, getting my sea legs for this podcast and interviewing people. Um, getting over the fact that I'm, I am inviting people who have a little bit more power than me um, and could probably make my life a little bit of living hell if they didn't like me. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, luckily, like I'm not trying to pour, put people in holes necessarily, uh, but I can imagine, yeah, going to a stranger, and, you know, especially Warren Buffett or someone that you know and being like, you know, no, no, answer these questions. Yeah, awkward feeling, but maybe also super empowering too. Once you're done, and they actually answer. Oh, when it, when they answer the questions, it's great. Or um, if um, you know they they don't want to, and then they do, that's great. Um, or if you learn something you hadn't learned before from something they said, that 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 that's that was always that was always great. Yeah. Okay. So you finished grad school. You went to be a professor at Nebraska, and then you went to UW. How are those transitions for you hopping around? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a dual career uh, couple. So my my spouse is also an academic, and so 
I graduated in 06. My first job was at the University of Delaware, where I was on the tenure track for one year in the political science department there. And my my wife um, had a, a postdoc position at, at Penn. And so we lived in Wilmington, Delaware. I drove her to the train. She would take the train to Philly. I would drive down to Newark, Delaware, where the University of Delaware was. We did that for a year and then both got job offers at a couple of different universities um, where we would both be on the same campus. And so and, and one of them was Nebraska. Um, and so we took that um, and were there for five years. Um, I really liked it there. Uh, it was really fun um, to be back uh, on uh, my undergraduate campus and, and teaching students and being colleagues with some people I had, you know, taken courses from, which was which was sort of interesting. Um, but when the opportunity uh, at, at Wisconsin came along, uh, for both of us, it was really good uh, for both departments that we that we're in are were are, are great here, uh, and the and the people are really fun to work with, and the, and the undergraduates and the graduate students are are, are terrific, and and Madison is is I really like living in Madison, and so um, it was uh, it was hard um, to leave, and it's it's always tough when you're in a dual career and one person's happy in their job and the other person isn't, and you're like we're gonna make a move now, and you know are we how's this gonna go, and, and that's always a challenge, um, but we are lucky that um, we both really like it here. Yeah, fantastic. If there were, and again, if it's too personal, let me know, but um, were there times that you really had to make major compromises to navigate going to different positions like around the U.S.? For sure. Um, You know, and I always, you know, when I'm advising graduate students who are in dual career situations, you know, the first bit of advice I have is to know your red lines, right? To know what you are and are not willing to do. We were not willing to live apart and so that meant, right, that um, we had to take the opportunities where we could live together. And so in, with the first job, that was me in a tenure track job and my wife in a one year. That's not great. Right. And so but we were but our we, we were not willing to live apart. And so we said, OK, you know, East Coast, lots of colleges all around. This is our best chance. We'll, we'll try that. Um, and then um, when we both had the opportunities um, at Nebraska. We were also. We had an opportunity at another school, uh, and one of the two departments um, hadn't tenured anybody in a really long time, uh, and and so we were kind of thinking, well, it's a good opportunity for one of us, but the other one that's a pretty big risk, and so Nebraska seems better comparatively, and so um, that was one of the things that helped guide our decision to go there, and then um, it just wasn't wasn't the right fit uh, for my my spouse's uh, department over the years, and and it was pretty clear relatively early on that you know. Um, either things would change in that department or or we would want to leave. And so we, we are um, very regular communicators. And so communication you know, is we key. Just constant conversation about where, where where are we willing to move and what kinds of places and, and what does that mean? And like when we moved, I'm, I shifted disciplines. I mean, I moved from political science where my Ph.D. was. Um, and my tenure home was at both Delaware and Nebraska to the School of Journalism at MassCom at UW. So that came with some risk. Um, but the school and the, the departments were, were too good to pass up. Yeah, and I really appreciate you sharing that because, you know, on and both times that I've been in grad school, there's a lot of workshops to say like how you can get a job, how to market yourself, but not a lot on resources of how to involve someone else in your life. Um, and basically how to be a human being in addition to, you know, having these really stressful jobs and positions and you are more than your H index. Yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you're more than your partner's H index. So according to Wikipedia, the H index is an author level metric that measures both the productivity and citation impact of the publications of a scientist or scholar. You can imagine having your life's work or, you know, everything you've done boiled down to a single number isn't really going to capture all the humanity that you have to offer. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I'm going to ask you one more question before we go on to our game. So you are now running a center that is dealing with civic renewal, or at least getting to the point where it's operational. Um, how would you define civic renewal? I would define it as a, a process where people were increasingly likely to think that those they disagreed with um, deserve a voice in political discussion that um, the remedy for losing is the next election. I, I was I believe democracy is for losers. And by that, what I mean is if you lose a, an election in democracy, there's always another one. There's always another opportunity to to uh, ad- advance your argument to the people and to win an election. The, the remedy is not to change the rules. 
and say, well, we lost, so let's make it harder for the people who didn't vote for us to vote. Um, you know, so so part of part of civic renewal is you know getting over the the bars of we count all of the votes and we give everybody an equal access to cast the vote, um, and and we accept the results when it's over and the votes are counted. And so like th those are bars that are a little harder to clear in the current climate, um, unfortunately. And so we have a lot of work to do. Um, I would say civic renewal is about being able to engage in conversation across lines of difference um, without it uh, breaking down um, into uh, violence. Um, this, you know, this, this is tough, right? Because um, not all positions are equally valid um, and and equal and or equally well defended um, and uh, help uh, an equal number of people. And so, you know, one one kind of classic tenant of journalism is balance but many many verifiable truths are not balanced right so like a classic example is climate change right that it's it's not appropriate to say some people argue that it's happening and some people argue that it isn't because that's you're you're, you're showing your audience a, a distortion of, of, of what the truth is and right and so but but not all issues are that clean cut right so how do we think about issues of, of race or inequality and what's the what's the right what's the right uh, level of equality is not something people tend to agree on. And so being able to um, engage in conversation across lines of difference where we're, we're likely to listen, where we're likely to think that the other side has a legitimate voice in the conversation, that where we think that when they win uh, and they have won uh, legitimately, the, then they ought to get to serve and have an opportunity to, to, to do what they said they were going to do. Um, and then we have an opportunity uh, to to have another election and, and and see what happens you know the next time and and so in, encouraging that conversation across lines of difference i would say is probably the the biggest thing um but then also helping folks learn about uh where um, we can get good information about the verifiable truth um helping folks learn about avenues that they can use to try to hold their leaders accountable um trying to find ways to encourage leaders to uh, be more transparent uh, with what it is they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, these these are all these are all things that we're that we're interested in. Yeah, super interesting. And and like you said, a lot of work ahead. <laughs> uh, are any of your strategies for that trying to remind people of how similar they might be in social identity versus partisan identity, or even just reminding you know you you have this idea of partisanship that seems like so. Uh, uh, extreme um, in this partisan divide that we have, but a lot of common core beliefs and values might actually be pretty similar. Yeah, it's it's been a real challenge, especially in our state where political identities have started to seep into elements of everyday life that they used to not seep into, right? And so, you know, fully a third of Wisconsinites said they stopped talking to a friend of theirs because they disagreed about Act 10, you know, that Governor Walker uh, signed into law, you know, about a, a decade ago. Right? And so, um, you know, it's just, it's really remarkable to think that one out of three people stopped talking to somebody because they disagreed about a political issue. Um, and, um, you know, we found about 20% of Wisconsinites have said that they have stopped talking with a family member. Um, you know, family usually would trump politics in terms of just getting together for holidays or uh, milestones like graduations and weddings and funerals. And, and there are some people in Wisconsin now who aren't getting together because their partisan identities uh, are, are so strong, because their disagreements are so stark that they don't want anything to do with people that were a big part of their lives before. And um, that's a really, really hard problem uh, to work on. Um, and it's, I, I, you know, it's not one that has a, any, any simple set of solutions. Well, good luck on that. I mean, I, yeah, you're only just trying to solve like one of the biggest uh, issues in the whole country. We're not alone. There are lots of smart people thinking about these things. Good, good. All right. So with your history of politics, um, both studying it and also organizing politics, reporting, I have created a game that I think you will like, hopefully. Before I tell you exactly what we are doing, though, I will need... A couple suggestions from you um, for this improvised game. So first, I need an animal. A dog. We just got a dog. So yeah. Okay. Nice. Uh, a famous actor. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. A color. Red. 
red. And last thing, article of clothing. Slippers. Slippers. So what we are going to do, we are going to have a debate against one another. I'm, I'm hoping this will be fun. I always like to improvise things. I pay attention to like the way that uh, politicians use their, their speaking, and I'm sure you have as well. Um, you got paid to do it, so I'm no, I know you did. So we are going to take a stance, either pro or against these crazy, made-up, hypothetical situations. And so last thing that I need you to do before we get into the scenarios is choose number one or two. One. One. Okay. So our first hypothetical uh, debate, and we will go, um, you'll get a minute, and I'll get a minute, and we can choose whoever goes first. But our first debate that will be occurring since you're number one, you are pro, a dog should be in every elevator. And I am against a dog should be in every elevator. So do you have a strong feeling if you'd like to go first for about a minute, and I'll loosely time us, I can also go first. I'm happy to go. It doesn't matter, but I'm happy to wait in. I say since you're pro, I'll let you go first. And then we're also going to switch it up in the next couple of sessions too. All right. You got loosely a minute and I'll try to give you some uh, hand signals of when you're running out of time. Sure. Well, elevator rides can be lonely. And so a dog in an elevator is an opportunity to, to fight that loneliness and to have uh, an animal that is friendly and loyal and fun to play with and will pass the time. Dogs also provide protection. Uh, a lot of times we will see uh, on, on the news examples of um, altercations that take place in elevators. Um, we, we even, you know, famous people are not immune from that. We saw Jay-Z get attacked by Beyonce's sister, you know, in an elevator uh, on TV a while ago. And so having a dog in that elevator uh, could serve as protection. It could also serve as a calming influence uh, to lead people to be less likely uh, to engage uh, in violent behavior. And so fighting loneliness and uh, pushing back against violence are, are two great reasons uh, that dogs uh, should be allowed in elevators. Fantastic. You made some really good points. Um, it's going to be hard to go against you, but I have my reasons too, uh, Mike. Um, why I don't want dogs in the elevators. Uh, and out of it, your mind. <laughs> well, if you could, if you could let me answer, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people do like dogs, and I even even myself, I'm one who likes dog, and I have family members going back generations for people who like dogs. We are a dog family. But I even know the limits of where dogs should be. And not everyone likes dogs. Not everyone can even be around dogs because they're going to be allergic too. And we're, when we're in closed, confined spaces, which can make people uncomfortable sometimes, adding another element of randomness, of sometimes fear, can make things even more chaotic. So if you are someone who is afraid of dogs or allergic to dogs, and you have to be in an elevator with a dog every single time, Wait, what's the silence? It's the silent rage I have at the recording software. We're in the middle of my glorious rant. I was cut off. With the magic of editing, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go with this and say, I will yield my time on my points. <laughs> Reclaiming my time. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that works out and, and some post-processing. So we're going to go on to our next round. And I, I should have also said, if you want to get a little silly and add accents or be a completely different person, you're more than welcome to. So our next debate will be over. You will be against, I will be pro, so I can go ahead and go first. I will be arguing that each appearance of Tom Hanks in a film should be edited so Tom Hanks appears with a Groucho Marx mustache and glasses. So every single time. I think we can all agree that we love Tom Hanks. He's one of the most prolific actors out there. He's well regarded as being a very nice person. But I think we can even elevate Tom Hanks' status to the next level. When we think of Groucho Marx, we also think of humor and silliness. And when we combine Groucho Marx plus Tom Hanks, we can get to this elevated Hanks Marx superposition of actor comedian. So if you think you're having a bad day and you need some comic relief. Just imagine Tom Hanks in Castaway with the Groucho Marx when he is speaking to a volleyball 
you're going to feel so much better. And in every single position that he has been in within a film, some are depressing, some are uplifting, but with the Groucho Marx mustache and glasses on, I think you will agree with me that your spirits will be lifted each and every single time Tom Hanks appears. I would say that having uh, Tom Hanks be forced uh, into a uh, Groucho Marx uh, mustache and glasses um, in every movie would uh, severely undercut uh, some of the messages uh, in some of uh, the more uh, highly regarded movies uh, that uh, Hanks has been in. So imagine uh, Tom Hanks's character in Philadelphia going into Denzel Washington's office, seeking representation for being wrongly fired because of his status as a person living with AIDS. The first time he meets Denzel, Denzel won't work with him. He walks out onto the street. We hear Bruce Springsteen's Streets of Philadelphia. His eyes well with tears, and he has a painted-on mustache and glasses. I think it would probably detract from the seriousness of, of the issue. Or trying to save Private Ryan um, with a with a Groucho uh, glasses uh, and uh, and mustache uh, would probably uh, detract from the seriousness of, of the movie. And so we 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 would almost be seen as mocking. Uh, people living with AIDS or, or veterans or soldiers uh, if, if we did those sorts of things. And uh, while Groucho was funny, I, I, I don't think that um, uh, using that uh, strategy um, as a requirement in movies uh, would serve the art. All right. Strong arguments from Mike Wagner. All <laughs> right. In our, in our last debate, um, we will have a chance for a rebuttal too. Ooh, very exciting. Yes. Um, so you are pro, I am against this time. You are pro garden gnomes with red slippers should be taxed at a higher rate than other garden gnomes. And I will be against garden gnomes with red slippers, uh, being taxed at a higher rate. I will speak as my aunt Linda might speak. Um, so, you know, we're in the United States of America. Okay. This is America. And we fought the British, the red coats, those gnomey little Brits. And, you know, if, if, if you're going to have something out there with red shoes, the color of England, and their red coats against our fighting boys in, in red, white, and blue, then they need to be taxed. Why did we have the revolution in the first place? Taxes. Stuff on tea, you know, stuff on stamps, uh, the Stamp Act, all of that kind of stuff related to uh, why we had a revolution in the first place. And so there's no reason we can't say if you're going to go out there and highlight the Brits with your red shoes, you should maybe have to pay a little bit more in taxes. That just seems uh, Yankee doodle American to me. Mike, you have made some excellent points. <laughs> but I want to remind you that we Americans are under difficult conditions right now. And if we elevate any more things with taxes... Our fellow Americans will not be able to afford the simplicities of life like God gnomes with red slippers on. And I understand you might be a city slicker, but out here in the country, we need to have our God gnomes. And our God gnomes like to have blue slippers, red slippers, white slippers, just like you were talking about. We like the red, white, and blue as well. On our slippers, on our little vests, on our gnomes, and our hats as well. And if we cannot have red slippers so easily as these other colors, then we are not Americans. All right, with that, you get a 30-second rebuttal to the gnomes. Well, geez, if you're going to talk about that for Pete's sake, if you're in, if you're out there in the rural areas and calling me a city slicker and all that, you know, like maybe you should just wear some red boots. There's no taxes on red boots. Why you got to wear slippers? You're out there in the country in the first place and you're out there in slippers outside. Doesn't seem to be very smart to me. I don't mind taxing somebody who's not bright enough to wear boots when you're outside. I understand. Well, here's where you, city slicker, mate misunderstand that it is a pleasure to open my door on my peach farm with my slippers, <laughs> take in the cool breeze on the suburbs morning, and just look at all my gnomes as well. It gives me great pride to have my red slippers match all my god gnome slippers too. And I think all Americans would take liberty in having an opportunity like that as well. All right. Well, I'm not sure our debate solved anything. Very contentious. Yeah. How did, did you feel like a politician in those realms? 
You know, I, I should have uh, rolled up my sleeves while I was talking to uh, to uh, communicate uh, down homedness in the way that politicians often do. I, I'm just like you. I roll up my sleeves and uh, take things very seriously. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is an audio medium, so we can't stare directly into the camera. Same effect. Right. right. That's harder. Did you do you do you feel my my uh, southern gentleman could be a politician? I I felt a seersucker suit vibe pretty strongly. So yeah, I think you know I, I could see a, a governor of Louisiana or a county administrator in Georgia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll work on that. If this whole academics podcast thing doesn't work out, it's good to have a backup. Yeah, I'll keep working on the voice. Well, Mike, thanks for uh, fake debating with me um, and sharing a lot of your insights, which are real. And I think listeners will find this super interesting. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. If you want to learn more about Mike Wagner and read some funny jokes he makes, follow him on Twitter at ProWag. That's P-R-O-W-A-G. If you enjoyed this episode and want to know more about the podcast or check out our other episodes, you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Deeper Than Data. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. Bad jokes, trying to stitch some stuff together for the podcast. Also by me, Ben Rush. Additional support and marketing by Jevin Lorty. Until next time, be well and think about my dried boogers. When I saw you on the bike trail the other day, I was coming oh, yeah. back from mm-hmm. doing 50 miles and, as you can imagine, <laughs> blood sugar <laughs> coming down as I was shouting at you. No, that's um, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Nope, as a person who teaches a lot of large classes, I get a lot of that, so totally fine. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I'm not sure if you saw on my left arm um, that the 26 miles on the way home, my nose started to run consistently. I just decided it was a good idea. So I had racing stripes of dried snot. So hopefully, I did not notice that. <laughs> okay, good. All right, keeping it professional. So I had racing stripes of dried snot, not, 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 not. Spin it again.